So uh, it's my privilege to be able to speak this morning, and I want to uh, read from Mark chapter 9, and this message uh, is accidentally a Father's Day message. I didn't actually intend it that way, but uh, it has an application. So it's called The Desperate Dad. And really, it's a story of Jesus healing the boy with an unclean spirit when the father brings him to him. So let me just read these verses in, from Mark chapter 9 and starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they weren't able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, how we've lost our understanding of the demonic realm. In the last few months, it's a constant theme or a consistent theme in conversation that I have had with various people in different places. What has happened to deliverance ministry? So I'm not going to pitch on that this morning, but I just want to underline the fact that we may be familiar with the story if we know our Bible, but uh, it challenges us uh, in this kind of culture in which we live where we lost an understanding of something that maybe we need to recover. So they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, he immediately convulsed him. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. It's often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. Imagine saying that to Jesus. If you can. All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd running together, he rebuked the spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, here we have the story of a desperate father who brings his demonized son to Jesus for deliverance. Jesus wasn't there. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. So failing to find Jesus, the father prevailed upon the remaining disciples to help. Their efforts came to nothing, and as Jesus came down the mountain, the man met him with his desperate plea. The story that unfolds tells of the encounter of this man and his son with Jesus. Jesus is the healer, and the boy is the one eventually healed, but really the father is the central character in the story. And the man asked Jesus to help if he could. Jesus rebuked him for his tentativeness, and told him that all things are possible for one who believes. The desperate man 
cries out with what I think is one of the most encouraging verses in the entire Bible. I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus rebuked the spirit, and the boy was set free. There isn't one of us that couldn't identify with that statement. And yet, as the story unfolds, we find out that in spite of the place the man was coming from, where he said, I believe, help my unbelief, uh, nevertheless, he got what he wanted. So, all of us can identify, I think, with this man's cry, translating it into the different predicaments, battles, and challenges that we face in our own lives. Now, that part of the charismatic movement that's called the faith movement has taught us that it's our responsibility to manufacture total certainty if we want to see God do anything in our lives. So it, it's all up to us. Believe it hard enough, and it'll happen. But if you don't, it won't happen. And so then our guilty conscience comes in when God doesn't answer all of the prayers that we pray. There must be something wrong with me because I don't have enough faith. Well, if you've ever felt like that, this story is for you. But it's important to clarify one thing to begin with, that because the Bible says in Hebrews 11 that without faith it's impossible to please God. So the man had faith. But his unbelief, because he had faith and unbelief, didn't he? I believe, help my unbelief. His unbelief was not directed toward who Jesus was. He came to Jesus. He may not have had a perfect understanding of who he was. Jesus is still here in the middle of his earthly ministry. But he came to Jesus, as we'll see the story unfolds. He came to Jesus with a pretty accurate picture that Jesus was someone who came from God that could help him. So he had genuine faith in that sense. But what he struggled with, what would, what would Jesus do for him? So all of us come to Jesus, if we're Christians here this morning, with uh, the assurance and the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, he is who he is, we know and understand that. But our struggle, like this man, is in any given moment, with any given prayer request or crisis that we're in or situation that we're in, what will Jesus do? Will he answer our prayer? And especially when we're in the middle of something quite difficult and we desperately need help that only Jesus can give. We all are thrown into a struggle of faith. But here's the great message of this story. In spite of the fact that the man asked Jesus to help his unbelief, I think there were four things in his heart, which I'll bring out in a moment, there are four things in his heart which testify to the fact that his faith was in God's sight genuine, even in the midst of doubts that he possessed. And for you and me, we who also believe but struggle with unbelief, to me that's a great comfort. And I think it will be a great comfort as you identify with this man this morning. First of all, he came in desperation. He was desperate for God. We don't know, the story doesn't tell us how long he'd waited for Jesus. It could have been uh, several days. Uh, 
He had heard about Jesus. We don't know how long it took him to bring his son there. But there was a period of time. And in spite of the dire situation he was in, his desperation drove him. Now, the Oxford Dictionary defines desperate as as this, as reckless from despair, as violent, as lawless, as staking everything on a small chance. That's desperation. So this man's faith was based on Christ. Nobody else would do. He was reckless from despair. He was going to bring his son no matter what situation, no matter how bad of a condition he was in. He was going to stake everything on the possibility that Jesus could help him. But our faith is weak often because our agenda is not ruled by desperation, but by complacency. That's one of the things I felt back in January 2020 when the first reports of COVID were coming out of China. And I said to a congregation in the United States, this is going to be one of the classic, uh, this is going to be a classic example of one of the plays of Revelation, on my understanding of Revelation. And God has two purposes. He's going to shake a complacent church. And he's going to shake an idolatrous world. But God's major purpose is actually the first. It's to shake the complacent church, because it's the church that's going to reach the world. And if, whether as a congregation or personally in our walk with God, if we have come out of all of this world-shaking events, if God went to all this trouble to shake the entire world up, which I believe he did, if we come out of it exactly the same as we went into it, then we missed something that God wanted to do that was significant. So it's a time for us to examine our lives. Where were we complacent? Where was our faith weak? Where is, what has God been challenging us to walk differently than we were before? We often place our faith in things other than Christ. James tells us we don't have because we don't ask. We're not desperate, like this man was, for God. Why is it that we wait, if you're like me, until every other option fails before we come to Jesus? If everything else fails, we'll pray about it. Now, but here's the encouraging thing. Jesus measured the strength of this man's faith, not by the doubts that he still had in his mind, Help my unbelief. But he measured the strength of this man's faith by his willingness as shown in his desperation to stake everything on Christ. There was nobody else that could help. The disciples even had failed, but his desperation drove him to Jesus. So the first thing that qualified him for a miracle, because remember, the end of the story tells us that the man got what he came for. He got the miracle. His son was delivered of the demon made completely whole. His first qualification was desperation. And I'm I'm saying again that we think of the qualification is that we believe in our mind and, and if we only believe hard enough, God will do it. That puts all the responsibility on us. But we can't do anything. In fact, the first qualification for receiving a miracle is simply desperation. So are you desperate? Or are you complacent? Are you still putting your trust in other things? Or 
do you realize that your, the answer is only in Jesus? So, the first thing that qualified this man to receive his miracle was desperation. The second thing was this. He came in, not only in desperation, but he came in worship. Why do I say that? Because if you read the parallel account of the story over in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, the first thing the man did upon seeing Jesus was to kneel before him. So, uh, maybe he didn't understand the whole theology of who Jesus was as Son of God. He hadn't quite got there yet. We don't know. Nevertheless, he understood enough of the place of authority that God had given Jesus to bow in worship before him. Instinctively, he took a posture recognizing that God had given Jesus a place of authority in his life. That meant he had to bow and worship before him. And so, again, according to Matthew's account, the man calls him Lord. In spite of his desperation and his desperate situation, he came not in anger or bitterness, which he might have done, but he came in worship. Now, worship isn't just the singing of songs, which we did this morning. It's wonderful. But worship is the laying down of our lives, isn't it, before God? Paul, it's interesting, in Romans 1 to 11, Paul unfolds a whole panorama of doctrine. The gospel is defined in those 11 chapters. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, he says, therefore. And in the therefore, he moves to practical application, which is a common theme in Paul's letters. He sets out the truth of the gospel. Then he says, therefore, this is the consequence for your life. But interestingly, the first practical application of the meaning of the gospel that Paul gives for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after he says, therefore, is this. Present yourselves as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or your worship, or the Greek word is logikos, your logical worship. It actually means which is uh, worship properly understood. So, Present yourselves as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God. That is the true meaning of worship. What we uh, do as we come together in singing or experiencing gifts of the Spirit, praying, etc., is the outward expression of the foundation of worship, which is the laying down of our lives that's taken place Monday through Saturday. And if we have a people who we, we have been laying our lives down daily in worship to God, then when we come together on Sunday, the presence of God is going to be there with us. Uh, if, on the other hand, uh, we're not living in obedience, daily obedience to God, you can still come together. You can go to mega churches that have fog machines and happy clappy and you know professional bands and all the rest of it, and it can be just a bunch of nothing in terms of the sincerity of your heart or of God actually meeting you. You can have an emotional experience, but it may not be worship if your heart hasn't been right and submitted to God in, in the six days prior. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the meaning of worship. 
What is being a worshiper? It means I've chosen to live my life building, I've chosen to live in faith, building my life in the rock of Christ and trusting him even when things are difficult, even when I have doubts and fears. So Jesus measured this man's faith, number one, by his desperation, and number two, by his worship. He came in desperation, he came in worship. And I hope you're seeing something of where I'm going with this, that there's hope for each of us if we come. We don't have to come with the attitude that I must have enough faith in order to force the hand of God to do something. God is God. We're not God. But what we do have to do is to come in desperation. That's not hard. We do have to come in worship. That's not hard. We can all come in worship. And thirdly, he came in honesty. Quickly and openly, before Jesus and everybody else, he admitted his doubts and fears. Now, you might think that was, you know, disrespectful to Jesus. Jesus didn't didn't seem to take it that way. I mean, he gave him a slight correction. But actually, uh, honesty is a sign of real relationship. Denial, pride, uh, you know, a pride, if he was in a position of pride that he, you know, couldn't admit uh, the help my unbelief part. That's lack of relationship because his unreality didn't express the reality of where he was at. Honesty is a sign of genuine relationship and that's part of the uh, uh, culture of the kingdom, I think, within the local body of believers that we can be honest with one another. We can say, hey, I'm having a hard time. I need help. I am struggling. That's the first step toward being able to access what you need. And so honesty is a sign of genuine relationship. Um, Here's the thing, though. Somehow he knew in his heart that his honesty would not lead to Jesus' rejection. That's really important. Why did he know that? Well, maybe he'd been hanging around Jesus' ministry. Maybe he'd seen that prostitute who poured ointment on Jesus' feet and Jesus didn't reject her. Maybe he'd seen Jesus calling Zacchaeus out of the tree and going to his house to lunch with all the sinners and tax collectors and Jesus received them and didn't reject them. Maybe he'd seen the unclean woman with the issue of blood. I mean, under Jewish law... She should have been locked up in her house, not going near anybody, because anybody she touched would become unclean. And here she is, pushing through the crowd, making every single person unclean that she touched. And then, to top it all off, going up to the most prominent rabbi in the land and touching him. That was a a scandal. And yet, she never did make Jesus unclean. He made her clean. See, honesty is a sign of real relationship. And he knew or had enough of a sense of Jesus and how he treated people to know that if he was honest, Jesus wouldn't reject him. And Jesus won't reject you either. If you have a problem, don't hide it. My wife... Uh, Elaine, who uh, 
has a, a technique uh, where if she gets frustrated or mad enough with the situation, she'll get in the car and drive out to some place and start yelling at the top of her voice <laughs> to God. And you know what? Uh, God's not bothered by that. He's not going to fall off his throne and have to take a tranquilizer. Uh, he knows what's going on in our heart anyway. He wants us to express ourselves in honesty to him, and he will never reject us. So the, the man came, first of all, he came in desperation. Secondly, he came in worship. Third, he came in honesty. Uh, Jesus embraced the man in his honesty and confession of weakness. Now, Jesus told us, as we'll see in a moment, that we only need a kernel of faith. And right there, Jesus looked to bless his kernel of faith rather than judging his mountain of unbelief. He blessed his kernel of faith rather than judging his mountain of unbelief. He measured his faith by his honesty. So he came in desperation, he came in worship, he came in honesty, and lastly, he came in trust. Now, his trust in Jesus overcame his disappointment with people. Uh, remember that before Jesus came down off the mountain, he had taken the son to the disciples, and the disciples had not been able to help. Though my question is, how often do people walk away from the Lord because a Christian or a church has apparently failed them? You hear it a lot uh, from people. Oh, whatever the circumstances were or weren't, uh, nevertheless, it's a fact that people walk away from God because they're disillusioned with church. And, of course, if you put your trust in church or people instead of Jesus, you will become disillusioned because you believed in illusion to begin with. You believed the illusion that they were the answer. Well, Jesus is the only answer. We are all imperfect. We will all fail one another. That's not an excuse to be slack in our walk with God. It's just a reality. Uh, and... You know, if you're complaining about this church and you're looking for the perfect church, I have a word of advice for you. You all wreck it the minute you walk into it. Hello, somebody. <laughs> so, lots of us are happy to overlook our own imperfections while judging other people. So, that in any event, the disciples had failed this guy. But he made the choice he wasn't going to walk away from God because church had failed him. And the other interesting point is that nowhere in the story does Jesus unload on the disciples for their failure. They came aside and asked him privately, why couldn't we notice they waited till the crowd had gone? And privately they said, why couldn't we do it? Now, he gave them some counsel, but he, he could have said, you bunch of jerks, you didn't make me look good. You know, some preachers unload on 
their staff or people in the congregation because you didn't make me look good through your bumbling. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a very unhealthy attitude. But it sometimes happens. But Jesus didn't have that attitude. He wasn't interested. He didn't need to look good. He was more concerned about correcting the disciples so that they could become functional and do the work than concerned because the disciples had, you know, uh, failed people and made his ministry look bad. But he doesn't unload on them. He just encourages them to press in deeper. But this man had learned the secret of keeping his eyes on Jesus. His trust was not in these people. It was in Jesus. Jesus will never fail you. He is perfect. You will never be disillusioned with Jesus. You will be disillusioned in your, with your own illusions, but you will never be disillusioned with the person of Jesus Christ. And so this guy stayed in church because he'd come to church for the right reason, to meet with Jesus. Now, that's why you're here too. So here's, can I suggest this to you? As I kind of come down to landing the plane. Can I suggest to you that what this man had in his relationship with Jesus or his approach to Jesus, he had these four things, desperation, worship, honesty, and trust. Can I suggest to you that these four things, desperation, worship, honesty, and trust, are the hallmarks of genuine biblical faith? Biblical faith, properly understood, is not an intensity or quantity or certainty of mental belief. Biblical faith is the strength of our personal relationship and trust with Jesus and our willingness to build our lives upon that relationship in spite of any doubts we may harbor in our minds about what Jesus can do for us in any given situation. Do you understand what I'm saying? True faith shows itself in the way we live. The desperate father did have a real amount of faith in his mind. Otherwise, he would never have come to Jesus at all. But the faith that he had in his mind was just the product of something deeper, a trust that he had in his heart. That's the meaning of the word pastuo, or to have faith in, in Greek, is to enter into a trusting personal relationship, not to believe a lot of stuff in your head. We do believe things about Jesus as a result of the relationship we have in our heart, but we've got to put the horse before the cart. And what was in this man's heart was enough to drive him to Jesus in spite of his doubts. Now, the end of the story provides us with one more detail, which is important. As I said, the disciples came to Jesus privately, asking, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said, this kind comes out only by prayer. Verse 29. Uh, Now, the disciples had lost track. Jesus was up in the mountain. Maybe they'd lost relationship with him. Uh, And they were trying to do it in their own strength, which is a good uh, application for us. But anyway, in their disappointment, they came to Jesus saying, you know, why have we failed? And he said, this, this kind comes out only by prayer. What's he saying? That, you know, there's some kind of magic ritual of prayer? No, he's not saying that. He's reminding them that true faith 
is born not out of positive thinking or positive confession or what we think we can do or how much we believe or whatever. True faith comes out of prayer. It comes out of a place of commitment and trust and relationship with Jesus. That's where faith comes from. And in the midst of it, we will always have doubts, but we press on. Because our worship, our desperation, our honesty, and our trust drive us to Jesus. Now the same story, is re, as I said, is retold in Matthew chapter 17. And Matthew adds one more detail to this last part. He said, uh, this kind comes out only by prayer, but he said their failure was also because of their little faith. That's what Jesus said. And then in the next statement... He says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Jesus, what are you talking about? The mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on earth, Mark chapter 4, verse 31. So therefore, first he says their problem was their small faith. Then he says, you only need small faith to do the impossible. Well, Jesus wasn't in the habit of contradicting himself. The key is in this Greek word oligopistian, which means small faith. But it actually means... Not just small faith, it also means weak faith, faith of poor quality. So what he's saying is, your problem is you have a poor quality of faith. You can have faith as small as a mustard seed. You only have to have a tiny quantity of faith, but you have to have a good quality of faith. That's what he's saying. So the desperate father had a small quantity of faith. Help my unbelief. But he had a great quality of faith, I believe. Now let's go back and paraphrase. The disciples came to Jesus privately and asked, why could we not cast it out? Jesus replied, because you have such a poor quality of faith. Your faith is weak. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, if it's of good quality, even though it's small... Even if your emotions are up and down, even if your mind is all over in the place, if you come to me in worship and desperation and honesty and trust, that's a good quality of faith. Even, you, uh, even if you have the tiniest quantity, nothing will be impossible for you. I hope this is encouraging to somebody this morning. Real faith draws us back to our relationship with the Lord. As we cast ourselves Upon him, we seek to maintain a depth of relationship with him. And I think Peter is a great role model. Remember that day on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes along walking on the water, and the guys are in the boat, heaving up and down with the waves, terrified that they're going to, all going to drown. And Peter gets out of the boat. And, of course, he starts to sink. Well, Peter gets a very unfair uh, press, I think, out of this because actually where, what happened to the other 11? They were all sitting in the boat. Pete, at least, got out of it. So, but, of course, as the Bible says, he began to take his eyes off Jesus. That's, that's where he lost that sense of relationship, right? And as soon as he lost that sense of relationship and started looking at the waves, he started to sink. But Jesus was so gracious and pulled him by the hand and rescued him. 
And in the same way, in the storms of life, he'll rescue us. But, you know, this is a a really significant thing that happened um, because of this. Jesus wasn't walking on the water just because it was the quickest way to get from one side of the lake to the other. I mean, he could have taken an Uber. Uh, Jesus was walking on the water to make a point. In the book of Revelation, uh, in uh, chapter 4, and again later in chapter 14, uh, the, the presence of God is described as, before the presence of God is described as something like a crystal sea, a sea of glass. Now, Revelation says, in the New Jerusalem, there'll be no sea. And the book of Revelation portrays the sea as the dwelling place of evil. It goes back to Pharaoh trying to kill the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And there's all sorts of imagery in Revelation that goes back to that. Um, But the point is this. That in the new creation, the sea, which the Bible pictures, the beasts come out of the sea and so on, the sea, which the Bible pictures as the dwelling place of evil, becomes calmed. In fact, it becomes like glass, like crystal, and you could walk on it. That day on Galilee, Jesus wasn't walking on the water to get from one side to the other the quickest way. He was enacting a prophetic declaration of the coming victory of the kingdom of Almighty God over the powers of hell. This is what's coming. And here's the neat thing about it. He called Peter out of the boat. What's that mean? Peter represents us. It's the, you know, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. So he represents all of us. Jesus calls us into this victorious battle against the powers of hell through the declaration of the kingdom of God, we too can walk on water. It doesn't matter whether you, you don't go out into Toronto Harbor and try it today. Maybe in January in a really cold, you know, winter. But it's a spiritual application. We're called to walk on the water with Jesus. We're called to join with Jesus in the battle against the powers of hell, which in this life, in this world, will only be partially accomplished, the victory. But in eternity, in the new Jerusalem, it will be complete. And so Peter that day, like the desperate father in my story this morning, the message of of both those stories is that all we need is a small amount of faith. But as long as our faith is rooted in relationship with Jesus and we keep our eyes on him, any of us can do the impossible. The impossible may be to see a miracle. The impossible may be just to persevere in a really difficult situation and remain faithful to God. Uh, Whatever the miracle is, God will give us the strength to keep on trusting him through the darkness until the light dawns. The desperate father, I think, should be a massive encouragement to all of us. We don't have to be superheroes of faith for God to meet us. We just have to be faithful. And all of us can do that. Amen? Let's, let's stand together, and then I'll give the service back over.
Just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. In a few moments, we'll just be silent. But allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you out of this message, out of this scripture. What is it that God's speaking to you today? What's the application for the battles you're facing today? What, what is it? How does he want to meet you today and encourage you? Let's just be quiet for a few moments. Lord, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace that comes to people like us. We're broken, we're imperfect. Uh, Lord, you've you've taken us as we are. Uh, You're so merciful and gracious. Lord, I pray that wherever we're at this morning in our walk with you, whatever challenges we face or will face, that we come to you like this man did. Desperate, worshipful, honest, yet trusting. And we come in the assurance, Lord, that like Peter that day, you'll reach out your hand and grab us when we're sinking. Thank you, Father, for releasing us from the burden of feeling that we have to believe A, B, C, D, and so on before anything is going to happen. It's our belief that's going to make something happen. Lord, just deliver us from that. Only you can make anything happen. And all we can do in our imperfection is cast ourselves upon you in your mercy, knowing how gracious you are and love to meet us. And for that, Lord, we give you praise today and always in Jesus' name. Amen.